once this coronavirus hit and we canceled the festival, we realized, you know what? We could have a virtual opera festival. Every week there's at least 11 live streamed events that you can participate in, and they are wonderful. I feel more part of my community now because I'm actually every day <laughs> able to see something that one of the companies is doing right there online. That was Peter Zepp. He's founding director of the New York Opera Fest. And this is Artworks, the weekly podcast produced by the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. As we know, COVID-19 and stay-at-home instructions are having an enormous impact on all the performing arts, including festivals, which may be particularly vulnerable to the pandemic. And that's the focus of today's podcast. This week is going to be a little bit different. Later on in the show, I'm going to speak to Peter Zepp from the New York Opera Fest. He's going to talk about recalibrating an opera festival to a virtual festival. But before we do that, I thought it would be a good idea to get a sense of the entire field of festivals. So I turned to the Arts Endowment's Director of Presenting and Multidisciplinary Arts, Brandon Gride, who has festivals as part of his portfolio. Brandon is new to the agency. So new, we haven't actually met because we've all been teleworking since he started. But coming from Opera America and Dance USA, Brandon has many contacts in the field, a lot of experience with performing arts, and he's given the landscape of festivals a great deal of informed thought. Here's our conversation. Well, welcome to the Arts Endowment, Brandon. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. We know that festivals are deeply impacted by the pandemic with many, many cancellations. And I'd like to begin with you talking about the vital role that festivals play in in the cultural landscape. Sure. Yeah. And and you're right. There is such a huge impact that the the COVID-19 is having on festivals and so many of the performing arts activities that are happening around the country. You know, festivals have such vastly different tones. Some are bringing in nationally and internationally known artists, bringing in huge tourism opportunities um, and, and have enormous profiles in their cities. And other festivals are, are really focused on local artists, talent that is drawn in and rarely representative of the community where they exist. And, and both are hurting. Um, artists can't travel, communities can't come together. And it's just really hard to support the artists that are trying to make a living out of doing their work and bringing together the communities. And so they're just facing some devastating losses. While certainly the arts are suffering and live performances are suffering most particularly, I do see some challenges that are unique to festivals, not the least of which crowds are key. They are the premise of a festival. Oh gosh, yeah. I mean, you know, even from the from the survey of public participation in the arts that the National Endowment for the Arts has put out every several years, we've actually even seen from the 2017 data that 40% of adults attended festivals that featured crafts, visual arts, or performing artists. The the data also highlighted that it's a higher percent of, of adults who attended an outdoor festival that featured performing artists than attended any other performing arts activity. This is something that has brings people together in so many different cities. 
And when we don't have a chance to come together, you know, we really lose out on that communal aspect, that opportunity to share experiences with each other. Well, I think another unique aspect about festivals is that they're yearly. They happen once a year. And so if it's canceled, it means that an entire year's income is lost. It's true. There's no one right way to respond to this. I think events such as AthFest in Athens, Georgia, uh, and the National Queer Arts Festival in San Francisco, they postponed their festivals. Um, other festivals are taking um, really unique uh, steps to be able to continue to highlight their artists. You know, um, the, U- the Utah Arts Festival is launching Festival Vibes Fridays. Um, they're taking the festival online in June and featuring the very artists who would have participated in the in-person festival. Um, and the New Haven International Festival of Art Ideas is doing the same thing. Um, so it's it, you know there's just a, a wide range of responses and and different organizations have different um, capacity. Different artists have different types of contracts. So so many different organizations and festivals are doing the best they can to be responsive in the best way to their artists and community. I think certainly when South by Southwest canceled, that sort of rocked the world of festivals because it's so big. Yeah, you know, it's interesting when that happened, because that happened really early on, if I remember correctly. Um, I was actually still in my maybe second to last week of my previous job as a, a advocate and lobbyist for Dance USA and Opera America. I hadn't even started this current position at the National Endowment for the Arts. And, and that just felt like a, a signal of what was to come. Yeah, I agree. Uh, when South by canceled, it really was an indication of the serious impact that this pandemic would have on the arts world. Yeah, you know, I think even as we sit at home, I, I think it even took about two weeks of, of teleworking to realize, oh, this is not going to be a short-term event that's happening in our lives. This is a long-term event. And, and it was fascinating to see as a variety of arts and cultural events started announcing cancellations, just just a wave that that happened, you know, events that were scheduled to happen in early spring canceled fairly early. And yet it was just so interesting to see the wave that happened as, as events were scheduled for May and for June and July and to see the response that organizations were taking to those, you know, it was just, boy, just, it was just so deflating at the time. And yet also really reinvigorating to, to see how some of the creative responses that organizations were having uh, in terms of, um, taking care of their artists or providing some of the artwork uh, online so that we could all participate as well. I was curious about that because I know some festivals are putting content online and I wonder how is that being monetized and are artists getting paid? Yeah, you know, I think that there are um, a range of responses to that. Um, my hope is that the artists are getting paid. Um, there are some sites online that are, um, are providing some details around the ethical handling of cancellation of events. And and I really do hope that organizations are reading through those and following some of those guidelines for ensuring that artists are being recognized for the work that they're creating. What's been really rising to the top for me is how vulnerable the artists have been already. And that to me has just been um, really top of mind and, and, and highlighting how so many artists have little access to healthcare. Artists don't have as much of a safety net. You know, this also impacts uh, artists of color in a very different way. It impacts artists with disabilities in a different way. And and thinking through how do we make sure that we're supporting this community, you know, ensuring that we are ethically 
supporting the creators of the content is, is super important. And I don't have any data on uh, which organizations are doing that, but I, I really hope organizations are looking for opportunities to continue to support those artists. I guess the other thing is, and, and believe me, I'm all for things being online. It's great. You, I've been seeing extraordinary things. But that sense of community that comes with the festival, you know, it's a temporary community, but anybody who's been to a festival will tell you it's it's real and it's strong. It is. And I think, you know, I don't think we're ever going to go back to the way things were before. Even as, as our own cities reopen, we're going to be learning new ways of, of developing community. I, I know that for me, just one example, I don't know if you had a chance to watch that Sondheim uh, and a, a birthday special that was streaming online. That's what I was thinking of when I said, I've seen some extraordinary things online. <laughs> You know, when the ladies who, who lunch and it was Christine, Christine Baranski and Meryl Streep and Audra McDonald, I mean, the shrieks in my household between my partner and I just got progressively louder as each artist came up. And, you know, as we talk about community and I went online, it was a shared experience between me and so many other friends. So, you know, we find ways of creating community that, that fill the gaps for the tr what we have always considered the traditional ways. And I very much look forward to going back and being with friends and going out to dinner before uh, going to see a performance or being in a dark space as the lights go down and, and you're with other audience members getting ready to experience the same thing or going to an outdoor festival where you're just walking from stage to stage and experience to experience, getting a chance to take in a, a wide range of arts activities. But I am also appreciating the fact that we're building new muscles. And as we talk about some of the ethical treatment of artists, you know, it's also really been top of mind to me about the increased accessibility to art within our home and how will that convey into the future as well? You know, I, it, it blows me away how much art is out there. <laughs> and I want to make sure that we are supporting the artists who are creating it. And, and, and this is not a but, but an and, I'm excited about how much is actually available right now. And I don't want to lose that. You know, I think about the people who can't afford to go to festivals, who, who have um, financial restrictions, who maybe have health or physical restrictions from attending different arts events, or people who just don't feel comfortable going into different spaces where art is presented, you know. And I want to make sure that this accessibility, this newfound accessibility that has been created continues and somehow we're able to create a really wonderful balance between the in-person and, and the access. Yeah, exactly. Let me ask you this. If you were going to put on your predictive hat, do you think smaller festivals, because A, they're smaller, but they're more agile, actually might have an easier time adapting to whatever the new normal is than larger festivals? You know, it's possible. And I, you know, I really don't know the answer to that. I, I know that just having worked in the opera field, it was fascinating to see how many of the larger budgeted opera companies really turned to um, smaller budgeted opera companies who, like you said, were, were more nimble. They looked to them for ways that they could pivot and be um, responsive to the needs of their own audiences in ways that the larger institutions couldn't. So I think there's always that incredible opportunity to learn from organizations that are more nimble. On the other hand, those smaller organizations might have a harder time getting through this crisis. So we really have to look to each other, to funders, to patrons of, of these activities, 
to make sure that all organizations of all budget sizes and serving a wide range of communities are, are supported during this time so that we can come out on the other side and learn from each other and continue to be able to figure out how we're going to navigate the, the situation once we're open again. I'm sure the way you're thinking about your job now has to be different from the way you thought about your job going into it. The pandemic is just so encompassing. And I wonder what shifted when you think about what you want to accomplish looking ahead. That's a good question. Because I, like you said earlier, I, I came into this job after the pandemic had already started. So I, I, I've never been in the office at the, at the Arts Endowment as, a, as an employee. And so I started this job working remotely. Again, reconnecting to what we said earlier, what's really been on my mind is the way that this pandemic is impacting artists and organizations that have traditionally been underserved. And, and how do we elevate the conversations around artists and communities of, of color and making sure that those organizations are supported? How do we make sure that resources are created to uh, direct funding opportunities towards those types of organizations? And I know that that's not always something that the Arts Endowment can advocate for on its own, but how can we help convene those conversations? How can we bring communities together to, to ensure that we are having dialogue around the very specific needs that communities of color are facing broadly, but also the impact it's having on, on the arts making as well? I think that's a good place to leave it. Brandon, thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you for giving me your time. I really appreciate it. And I know we'll meet one day. Thank you. That's Brandon Gride. He's the Director of Presenting and Multidisciplinary Arts at the National Endowment for the Arts. You're listening to Artworks. I'm Josephine Reed. And now we're going to take a look at a specific festival, the New York Opera Fest, and how it transformed itself into the New York Virtual Opera Fest. The New York Opera Fest is hosted by the New York Opera Alliance, which is a community-driven consortium of opera companies and producers. My guest is Peter Zepp. He's founding director of the New York Opera Fest, co-founder of the New York Opera Alliance, and co-host of Indie Opera Podcast. Welcome, Peter. Thank you so much. Peter, you're a founding member of the New York Opera Alliance. Tell me what you're hearing from the members. So, obviously, live performance activity has ceased. But a lot of companies have jumped into creating virtual content. And a lot of them are doing more than that. Some are actually holding seminars and discussions on how to deal with the coronavirus or how to deal with careers. So people really have switched gears, which is a little bit of an advantage of being a small company is you can be very flexible, you know, and they, and they jumped into action and they're making sure that performances are online and that things are happening. So there's a very fast switch, especially some companies are so fast. The first week, they automatically jumped onto it. Uh, and more and more companies are realizing, hey, we have something to offer. So they're getting organized as well. But as you know, being an artist in New York City, sometimes being an artist isn't your main source of income because it doesn't pay very well. So you have a second job like waiting tables or doing something else, and all of those jobs are gone. So it's pretty dire. Well, that's exactly right. It's very, very difficult. 
Let's have a little bit of history about the New York Opera Alliance. Tell me about the organization and when and why you began. I've been involved with small opera companies in New York since the 90s, and there were some really strong players. And as you know, in any art, arts organization, we're pulling from the same pool of opera performers, opera singers, directors. And a lot of us were wondering if there's a way for us to be able to communicate better and work better as a group. So that was sort of in the air. And I wanted to know more about what was going on. I knew about a dozen companies. So I started a podcast hoping that, gee, I'll force myself to find out what's going on. And so I, I started interviewing people in the community and other artists. And while interviewing Gina Krusko, uh, they were doing the opera Clarence and Anita about the Clarence and Anita Thomas trial. I think you mean Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas. Yeah. And so I'm interviewing her and Ben Yarmolinsky. And when we're done, she goes, so what are you going to do with this podcast? And I said, well, what do you mean? She says, well, have you ever thought of doing a festival or doing something else? I said, well, you know, it's been in the back of my mind, but no. And she um, said, why don't we start a group of small opera companies so we can talk to each other? So Gina brought, um, spoke with Corey Ellison, who is a dramaturg, and the three of us got together and said, let's figure, make a list of all the companies we know and get us in a room and just start talking and see where it can go. So we got 12 of us together, and while we're in the room, we realized, wait, there's more, there's more. So we started to gather a list and inviting people, and we at first had 30 companies sign on. We made a list, we kept, it kept growing. There are 80 companies at least in the city, and 50 have joined the New York Opera Alliance at this point. I had no idea there were so many opera companies in New York. Yeah, who knew? I mean, we didn't know. <laughs> well, that's what's really interesting about it is instead of just being a communication tool, we all of a sudden realized we're a community and we didn't know, we, we couldn't act as a single unit. We weren't communicating with each other. And this really started collaborative efforts. We started an opera festival. We would be in our fifth year if it wasn't postponed this year. We'd be doing a festival every year. Plus, we get together and talk about business issues, all sorts of things. And once this coronavirus hit and we canceled the festival, we realized, you know what? We could have a virtual opera festival. So what we've done is we've built a website and we're putting everyone's virtual content on there. So there, there's one spot. If you want to find out what little opera companies in New York, big opera companies in New York are doing, go to our website and we have information. What's the website? It's called nyoperafest.com. And there's a calendar of events. Every week, there's at least 11 live streamed events that you can participate in. And they are wonderful. I feel more part of my community now because I'm actually every day <laughs> able to see something that one of the companies is doing right there online. That's extraordinary. Yeah, it's really, really wonderful. And when you say it's live streamed, are people performing from their homes? How is this working? So there's different ways. Um, each event is slightly different. Something like here, Arts Center, uh, which is downtown and has been producing for a while, has a huge library of performances. And what they're doing is they're calling them watch parties. So on Facebook, they're streaming some of their larger performances, like the Symphonie Fantastique, that was Basel Twist, the puppeteer, um, Thomas Paine and Violence, Looking at You, which is a Kamala Sankaram, opera, they keep streaming these and they, they're calling them watch parties. The thing that I like 
really the most <laughs> is Opera on Tap every single day at 8 p.m. on Facebook are doing a quote-unquote cabaret called Emmy and Harry's. And it's wonderful. Annie Hyatt will host. And uh, the first one I watched, she actually sang right there from her desk in Aria. And then she sort of plays video disc jockey. And uh, people record things and she, she'll play it. So it's almost like watching a little opera MTV every day. That's amazing. You know, so many people, I think, you know, who aren't involved in opera per se, we have the idea of opera as grand and spectacular with dozens of people in elaborate costumes on a stage of a great hall. And while that certainly is some opera, that's hardly all opera. Right. Well, that's really a 20th century thing. It's actually relatively recent in opera history. If you really go back and look at it, opera was being done in smaller places for less people. Uh, chamber operas, the Baroque operas, they weren't being done in these huge concert halls. That's really a, a construct of the 20th century. And, and the voices got bigger because the halls got bigger and bigger and bigger, right? But that's recent. That's a new thing. Opera hasn't been that until, you know, the past hundred years. If you go back 200, 300, opera's been around for a while. It, it wasn't like that at all. So opera's been now changing how it's being presented. It's being done in bars, being done in cafes, it's being done in parks. I mean, I've seen productions on boats. <laughs> there's, there's just a lot going on, especially here in New York. One of my favorite things is that in New York, it's, these organizations aren't just opera companies. There's also American Theater and American Opera Projects. They both work on making sure it goes through the process, bring the librettists and the composers together, because there's a lot of really wonderful work being done right now in New York. Well, I was looking back at previous opera fests that you had put on. Give us an idea of how many performances you guys would mount, and over what period of time? It's quite a long festival. Yeah, we did an eight-week festival. Almost every year, we've had about 40 different performances. And there's been a trend over time. At first, it was sort of in unusual locations. That was sort of the beginning of it. Um, and over time, the productions have gotten bigger. They've gotten more planned because people can plan further ahead, and they're becoming more like staged operas. But some of them are just very, very, very intimate you know, very small gatherings, because opera isn't just that one big thing. Well, opera has so many moving parts, which, you know, can be quite challenging. And I would think coordinating an opera festival has a lot of moving parts. What goes into making an eight-week-long festival happen? Then I want you to talk about when you have to recalibrate to put it online. I know. It sounds really complicated, but it's not. The thing that I think that makes this festival special is that it's not curated like most festivals, where you have a single producing entity who then chooses from a large selection a few operas to do. In this case, we have a lot of opera companies choosing what they want to do and then just becoming part of the festival, which actually it makes it unique because the minority voices in opera, early composers who are just starting out, no one is being silenced or being left out. So this is a real survey of what's going on at the grassroots level of opera instead of some opera companies 
you know, curated, synthesized vision of what opera is. So it's actually pretty simple. <laughs> I get that part, but it can't be simple figuring out 40 performances so people aren't stepping on each other's toes and that there can even be a collaboration. So if people need to use sets or designers or singers or musicians, they can they can all work together. I mean, if you think that's easy, I am inviting you to my house to help me organize my study because <laughs> I, I think it's pretty daunting. <laughs> well, fortunately, I'm not the one who's making the artistic decisions, you know. <laughs> um, this is really, it's an open door. It's more like the Fringe Festival. So uh, those sort of decisions aren't the difficult ones. It's really... Every, anything goes. If someone wants, who is a member of the New York Opera Alliance wants to host an event that's part of the festival, the only rule we have is that it isn't some gala fundraising event. So it can be a discussion about opera. It can be a film. I mean, some of these companies produce films. Experiments in opera um, often produce films, and it's more like a film festival. You come and they premiere their five short operas that are filmed. So, oh, interesting. Yeah, they're a wonderful group. So on our end, the complicated part is making sure we have all the information so that we have a website so that everyone has a single place to, to go to to find out what's going on and make sure that we speak with a single voice so that we come up with whatever theme it would be for the year just so that we can get our voices heard. This year, it was going to be five years, five boroughs, because it was our fifth year and we have five boroughs. And we wanted to make sure that something was happening everywhere in the city. So it was going to be geographic. So ironic that this year, no one can move. <laughs> yeah, that is ironic, isn't it? <laughs> so you set up the website and then people post whatever it is that they're producing. The issue with the, the festival this year is people automatically were going to create virtual content. And everyone's creating different kinds of virtual content. So the challenge this year was to figure out, well, how do we find a place where it all can be served together? So basically what we've done is we've created a single page that has a calendar with links to the actual live events so that people can, won't, you know, will know exactly when the live events are happening. And then a list of each company who is producing digital content and a link to whatever page it is that they have the digital content. Everything this year is being done by hand. I talk with an individual company, we get it and find out where it would fit. You know, there's nothing automatic this year because it's all different. You know, live streams, old content, new content, trying to figure out how it, how it works together. Well, you know, what I was just listening to before I spoke to you was Heartbeat Opera online oh, with yes. their Make Our Garden Grow. Oh my God, it was gorgeous. And I Can love Candide. Yeah. I love right. Candide. I don't want to sit through a performance of Candide, but I, <laughs> I, because really, let's face it, but I just love the music from Candide. And, you know, to hear the singing and, oh, it was glorious. It yeah, was when just they, glorious. The way they handle it, there's not only singers, they've included dancers. So dancers are involved with this. And it's sort of like a Zoom meeting. When someone comes in, all of a sudden their picture arrives. And then it's this ensemble. It's a whole grid of human beings singing the song together. It's so uplifting and hopeful. I loved it. It's so lovely. It really made me very happy. I think we know that 
things can take time to get back to something, whatever the new normal is going to be. But I think we also know that concert halls and theaters are going to be among the last places to recover, sporting arenas as well. I wonder what your thoughts are about this. I mean, you are the co-host of the Indie Opera podcast, so you're clearly involved a lot with members of your community. And what are you hearing as they're thinking about what could possibly be on the other side of this? Yeah, well, the opera community has really had an explosion lately, and I'm really hoping that it can somehow picks up and continues after this. What is scary for us is a lot of these opera companies, we really have this pool of talent that is living in New York that may have had to move home with their parents, may be losing their money and not be able to move back. So the whole landscape is going to change. The question is, what does it take? What sort of milestone do we have to pass before people feel comfortable coming back and sitting next to other human beings in a tightly cramped space? I'm hoping, I'm an optimist, that once the, you know, once someone says it can happen, people are going to rush to the theaters. What will happen every week seems like a completely different future. You know what I mean? <laughs> Two weeks ago, the future seemed different. Last week, this week, it seems really different. But I'm an optimist. I'm hoping that next week, the future will not be as dark as this week. In, in, a, in a time of pandemic... Why opera? Why is opera important? That's an easy question. (laughs) Uh, It it is amazing how elemental and central to the human condition that singing and storytelling is. The moment a crisis occurs, one of the very first things that we do is we gather together and we sing. 9-11, even the Congress got together, and they were not getting together on almost anything. But they got together, they had a moment of silence, and then they sang God Bless America. If you were here in New York, you would go to Union Square and people would stand up and sing a song. Because when our emotions are great, one of the first things that we run to is music and storytelling. And that's exactly what opera is. There's something about when our emotions are high that music can take our emotions and put it in a format to share that's really impactful. So I'm, I'm really hopeful. Well, I mean, this at times of stress, um, the arts are a way for people to share, to be part of a community, and to express themselves when things are down. And the moment this crisis started hitting, these opera companies instantly jumped into action and said, how can we reach out to the community and give them something to make it through this? I'm very hopeful for opera. And I don't think you can keep opera down. I mean, since the beginning of time, we've been singing. We've been telling stories. If you go to the most ancient cultures, that's what we do. So I'm, I've, I've never been worried about that whole you know, opera dying. It won't die. It can't die. We're always going to tell stories and sing. Well, Peter, first, thank you. And thank you for all the work you're doing. It's wonderful for all of us. So I, I really appreciate everything that's being offered. Give us the website for Opera Fest one more time. It's nyoperafest.com. Okay, that's pretty easy. And from there, there are links to COVID resources and other, other things for, for people. 
I encourage people to, to you know, act, act as a community no matter where you are, whether it's with opera or dance or even just talking to each other. Just we want to encourage people to, to feel like one community because we'll make it through this. Absolutely. Peter, thank you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. Uh, it's such an honor to be on your show. Oh, my God. It's a pleasure. <laughs> that was Peter Zepp. He's founding director of the New York Opera Fest, co-founder of New York Opera Alliance, and co-host of Indie Opera Podcast. The New York Virtual Opera Fest is running through June. Again, the website is newyorkoperafest.com, and you can find glorious music there, including Heartbeats Opera's gorgeous version of Make Our Garden Grow. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Subscribe to Artworks wherever you get your podcasts. And then tell your friends about us and leave us a rating on Apple because we really want people to find us. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Stay safe, stay kind, and thanks for listening.